Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Decoding the Unknown. As always on this show, I'm your host, Simon. Welcome, welcome. Uh, The format of this show, if you're new here, is one of my writers today, Kevin. Thank you, Kevin. Has written me a script. Dorothy Edie, proof of reincarnation, question mark. Oh, it's gonna be a, it's gonna be no, isn't it? Because reincarnation's not real. Um, but as I always say, I'll go with an open mind, even though that sounded like a very closed-minded statement, even though I'm fairly sure it's fact. And we're gonna find out. Also, thank you to Jen who edits these videos and podcasts. Uh, it's also available as a podcast or as a video. You can get it on YouTube. You can get it wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you so much for being here. And let's jump into it. Oh, did I say the format? Kevin writes it for me. I've never read it before. It's uh, that's that's what we do and we decode the unknown (laughs) brilliant introduction simon good job let's go Be it through dumb luck, talent, or cowardice that prevents me from doing anything dangerous, I've managed to live almost 40 years without any major injuries. I'm going to say dumb luck is probably the biggest factor, because I was definitely hit by a Mack truck while walking across the street as a child, but I escaped with nothing but a bruise on my leg and a large feeling of annoyance. I have to say, like, I'm also a little bit afraid of danger. I, I feel I turned 30, and then I suddenly just became very aware that I can die. Why? What are you scared of? Like, I, I used to enjoy, like, mountain biking, I used to quite enjoy skiing, and now I'm just like, I'm, af- I'm not afraid, but it's like, I was being really careful, I was mountain biking last summer, and I came off and broke my collarbone, and I was like, this is exactly what I was afraid of, and this is why I don't do sports. Um, but skiing, I quite enjoyed it, and then I went skiing a few years ago, um after becoming afraid of death and i was much worse at skiing because i was like (laughs) when you're not afraid you're just kind of like and you're like this is great and now i'm like oh my god i could definitely die and so i'm like slow and i'm just like i don't know i just don't enjoy it that much (laughs) one summer afternoon when i was two and a half years old i climbed up onto the windowsill to play with my matchbox cars matchbox cars i have no idea why but i didn't find the floor to be a suitable place for this activity but i was an annoying little kid that liked to climb around oh my god preach my like uh, first kid's a little older than two years old and like yeah exactly the same why can't we just play with this here why do you have to play with this here why 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 must you climb on this it's clearly put that cactus down jesus christ I was also a stupid little kid. The window was open, but to my two-year-old mind, the window screen was just as strong as the glass panes would have been, so I leaned against it. It turns out the screen was also broken, but I'm sure the result would have been the same either way. The screen popped off out of the window, and I fell, landing on my head in the garden that lined the back of the house. 
which was a rock garden. <clears throat> Crying, I got myself up, rang the doorbell, and when my brother opened the door for me, I went inside and got a glass of milk. My parents were finally made aware of what happened, and I was rushed to the hospital where x-rays showed that I had a broken collarbone. Holy sh- that's the only bone I've, ever, bone I've ever broken, and I'm lucky that I wasn't injured much more severely. My parents are also lucky that this was the 1980s and not decades later, otherwise DYS? I don't know what DYS is, but I'm assuming it's like social services, would have showed up and asked exactly why the f*** I was allowed to play in an open window completely unsupervised. Would they? I feel like that's... <laughs> maybe it speaks to me like being a not good parent. But I'm like, I mean... I like to think my kid couldn't fall out of a window, but I also like to think if they did, it would be because of a moment of me not paying attention or something, and then you can't take my kid away because I didn't pay attention for the three seconds, or the fact my kid's an idiot. Come on! This is not my fault, though. Fortunately, that's not happened to my kids, but I've seen, like, I do see it as... <laughs> it's terrible to say, but it's like, yeah, that could possibly happen. <laughs> Fortunately, minor broken bone aside, I walked away from this experience pretty much unscathed. There was no permanent damage, and I immediately returned to being the same stupid kid that liked to climb all over things. Given the traumatic blow to the skull, things could have easily gone much worse. Damage to the brain could have caused me to wake up seeming like a completely different person. How would my parents have handled it if I woke up not only as a different person, but as a person who had lived over 3,000 years ago? I was wondering where this is going, and now I get it. So someone that had, I'm, I'm guessing there's Doroth... Dorothy woman knocked her head, woke up, and was like, I am now Jesus. I mean, yeah, I mean, it'd be proof of reincarnation uh, if uh, head trauma couldn't explain that sort of thing. <laughs> A person that suddenly possessed provably true information that none of the world's Egyptologists had previously known. What? That is a twist. This episode was a suggestion from YouTube commenter Scotty D. So remember that if you have any mysteries you'd like to hear Simon cover via Kevin, please be sure to get in the comments. The reincarnation. No, we're not starting in the middle of the story. This is actually where the story begins. Dorothy Lee was born into a middle-class family in London in 1904. At the age of three, she fell down the stairs. When the doctor came to examine her, he pronounced her dead. An hour later, he returned with a death certificate, at which point her condition was upgraded to alive. And that is how people in the past got buried alive. Like, way more commonly than you think. I made a video. I have a channel called Into the Shadows. And I made a video all about uh, people getting buried alive. <laughs> And it was surprisingly common because doctors were like, yeah, yeah, she looks dead. <laughs> Where do you need me to sign? Like, obviously her heart was still beating. Obviously she was still alive because she came back to life. So she never died because it doesn't happen. People don't just spontaneously come back to life. Um, so yeah, 19, oh, 1900s doctors could have got your together. Come on. I understand that medical science has come a long way since the early 1900s, but that doesn't seem like a mistake that anyone should be making. Whether she was actually dead or he was just a terrible doctor isn't something we can say for sure. No, but we can obviously lean very heavily towards the fact that he was a terrible doctor. I mean, she might have died. But then death, people think that death is like your heart stopping and it's like, I died on the table and they brought me back to life. It's like, that's not death in the modern context of the word. Death is like brain death, where your brain is no... Like, someone can be alive, technically, like, on a ventilator, and I guess their heart can be, like, beating somehow. But if they're brain dead, they're dead. We need to update our definition of, like, death to be brain death, not heart death, because, obviously, that can be solved sometimes. But, look, doesn't matter in this case. 
I'm gonna lean, I'm, I'm leaning towards the fact that this guy was just a shit doctor. But there does not seem to be any dispute that she was declared dead, so for the sake of the reincarnation narrative, let's go with it. Alright, fine, Kevin. But she didn't. After the accident, Dorothy was a different girl. She began exhibiting strange behaviors and asking to be brought home. She had vivid dreams of her home, but could not yet identify it. She also started speaking with an unfamiliar foreign accent. There's actually something called foreign accent syndrome, um, which is where people have this sort of knock on the head, and then they just start speaking in foreign accent for no reason. It is a strange condition. <laughs> Uh, well, we know that this is now a medical condition known as foreign accent syndrome. There you go. It was pretty mysterious at the time. In fact, the accident occurred the same time that French neurologist Pierre-Marie was first un uh, studying the condition. It's also extremely rare, with barely 60 reported cases since 1907, so I wouldn't expect the doctor that can't tell the difference between a living and a deceased child to know of this rare condition. Honestly, I would not expect that doctor to know very much at all. While most cases of foreign accents syndrome were caused by strokes, head trauma is also known to be a cause. Still, to the untrained ear and the unstudied doctor, it truly seemed like she'd suddenly taken on an accent rather than suffered any brain damage. I know we're opening with a lot of skepticism and debunking right off the bat, but don't worry, dear listener, I'm just trying to lure Simon into a false sense of security, so when we get to the truly unexplainable, I'll never see it coming. Oh shit, do you think he heard us, Kevin? Yeah, but I mean, I know this show is called The Decoding and the Unknown, and I know it's kind of like the vibe of the show is looking into all these mysteries, but I mean, the show is called Decoding the Unknown because it's all explainable, really, isn't it? I mean, and even if it's not, there's one way we can lean. It's like, did she come back to life or was he a doctor? Okay, well, let's have a look at the stats, shall we? What exists? Doctors? Yeah, loads of them. What doesn't exist? Coming back to life from dead, from the dead. And we're not talking about that heart-stopping bullshit that I already addressed, are we? That never happens. If you're brain dead, you're brain dead. It's over. At four years old, Dorothy's parents took her to the British Museum. That's a pretty pres pre uh, presumptuous name, considering that London alone has 170 museums. When they approached the ancient Egyptian exhibit, Dorothy began running around like an obnoxious spaz, kissing the feet of the statues and declaring that these were her people. When she was seven years old, she found a picture of the Temple of Seti I in Abydos, Egypt, and she ran to tell her parents that she found her home. However, she was dismayed that the building was broken and the garden was gone. When she saw a picture of Seti I, she claimed to have known him personally. All right, well, she's just a bit loopy, isn't she? What are you, crazy? Her parents, unsurprisingly, weren't thrilled with any of this and discouraged her, but she went to the museum as often as she could to visit the Egyptian exhibition. When she was 10, Egyptologist Wallace Budge of the British Museum agreed to teach her to read hieroglyphics. She picked it up astonishingly quickly, which she attributed to the fact that she wasn't learning a new language. She, she was simply remembering what she had once forgotten. Or alternatively, she could just be good at languages. <laughs> I saw a great joke the other day about the British Museum. It's like, uh, why are the pyramids in Egypt? Because <laughs> they couldn't fit in the British Museum. <laughs> it's fucking terrible. And also, the British Museum is not British. It's like mostly just filled with other people's shit. I made a video about this in one of my other channels called Side Projects. You can check it out. And it was, I think we even titled the video, The British Museum, A Collection of Other People's Stuff. <laughs> savage and there's this whole discussion about whether it should be given back and even as a british person i'm like yeah i mean it should unless you're sending it we basically came to the conclusion unless you're sending it back to some like war-torn country where it's going to get destroyed uh then just hold on to it on behalf of whenever that country calms down however if it's like egypt and shit just send it back <laughs> why do we have all this egyptian stuff that we nicked and by we i mean like not me but like my 
country and its kind of unpleasant history. Throughout her life, Dorothy was also having vivid and recurring dreams. Her early dreams were of the temple in Abydos, the place she now had identified and called her home. As she entered adolescence, however, her dreams became more adolescent. When she was 14, she began to dream of, and subsequently relay to others, her relationship with Seti I, which was a bit ribald. She even had visions of Seti's mummy visiting her at night and tearing away her nightgown. That's not great, but I suppose it's no less creepy than Edward and Bella. Yeah, Twilight is super creepy. It's like Bella's a young, like she's a teenager and Edward's like a thousand year old man. It's like, ah, you didn't think about this properly. Again, her parents were not thrilled. And if the I'm not angry, I'm disappointed speech wasn't going to correct her behavior, maybe our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, absolutely could. Except not so much. Dorothy was thrown out of Sunday school for comparing Christianity to Egyptian paganism. She was expelled from the school and as she attended for refusing to sing a hymn that prays for God to curse the swart Egyptians. Yeah, maybe we shouldn't be singing that hymn anyway, you know? An angry priest even barred her from attending Catholic Mass after she said that Mass reminded her of the old religion of the pharaohs. <laughs> She's kind of nailing it, though, on these ones, isn't she? So, if disapproving parents and Jesus were both, both unable to cure over obsession with Egypt in her past life, what about doctors? Well, that is where I would have absolutely f began. It's like, she's got some sort of mental condition. Where shall we start? Well, we'll tell her off. Okay, that didn't work. Let's try Jesus. <laughs> Also, no. She was committed to several sanitariums, but she had her beliefs and nothing was going to change them by age six. Yeah, well, nothing was going to change them. That's a bit of a defeatist attitude. I know this was the past, but nowadays, if someone believes in this stuff, we give them uh, a... There's treat... I mean, I'm sure there's, like, sometimes it doesn't work and stuff, but if someone believes in something crazy, like, uh, someone has schizophrenia, and they believe that they're being spied on by the Russians, and I mean, maybe they are, <laughs> but, uh, or they've got like, but there's no reason. They're just a regular person going about their regular life and they believe they're part of some conspiracy. Yeah, they strongly believe that. But then don't we give them some pills or some therapy or some psychiatry to kind of be like, you're not being spied on. I mean, maybe you are, but it's just really unlikely. By age 16, she was home again and had dropped out of school. She would spend her time visiting museums and archaeological sites around Britain. The details on how she was able to do this with no money and parents that didn't care for her obsession is a little bit unclear, but it seems she was able to tag along with her father while he traveled for work. When her father began operating an early movie theater in Plymouth, Dorothy became a part-time student at the Plymouth Art School. Dorothy's Past Life it was during this period of her life that Dorothy discovered the details of her previous life in ancient Egypt. Over the course of a year, she was visited by the spirit of the god Hora, who dictated her life story. By the end, the story is about 70 pages of cursive hieroglyphs long, which is a lot to write by hand, but at least she got to keep her nightgown on this time. <laughs> in her past life, Dorothy was a woman named Bentrashite, which literally means harp of joy. Her father was a soldier, and her mother was a vegetable seller. When she was only three years old, her mother died, and her father, unable to afford Ford, a child, abandoned her at the temple of Komel Sultan near Abydos. There, Bentrashite was raised to be a priestess. When she was 12 years old, she was given the option to either go out into the world or take a vow of celibacy and become a priestess of Isis. Uh, or Isis? I don't know. They're spelt the same way as Isis, as in like, the terrorists priestess of Isis. It's got a different meaning today. Having been abandoned at the temple of a, as a child, she lacked any practical alternative, so she stayed. 
to become a priestess. At age 14, the young Seti came to visit the temple. While he was there, he was taken by her beauty and spoke to her. And then one thing led to another, and then Bentishite was pregnant. Considering how short every synopsis of her past life is, I'm guessing most of the 70 pages were describing in great detail exactly how that happened. After all, while allegedly dictated by a god, this was still being written by a teenager. Once rumors of Bentishite's pregnancy got out, that was the end of her. The penalty for breaking the vows of celibacy was death, so to spare Seti the embarrassment of a public trial, she took her own life. The problem with this reincarnation stuff, right? Haven't there been like a hundred billion people in the world? And like the vast majority, I'd even say more than half. <laughs> no, it's like 99.9999 percent just had boring, banal lives. So what are the chances that you'd be reincarnated as someone who knew Seti, who I barely vaguely heard of? What are the chances of that? The chances are you'll just be that random fruit seller. That's who you're going to get reincarnated as, and you'll be like, oh, that's boring. <laughs> so I've got a really good knowledge of ancient Egypt from a fruit seller's perspective. What are the chances that it just, you just have to be reincarnated as someone's super interesting story? If you happen to pick up on the fact that her abandonment at age three corresponds with the age of a near-death experience, and that her romantic liaisons with Seti at 14 correspond with when she started having her sex dreams, I assure you, it is entirely coincidental. <laughs> Moving to Egypt. When Dorothy, holy shit, that is a commitment. I mean, yeah, because that's what she believes. I don't believe she's faking any of this. I believe she banged her head and some, like, wires got crossed. When Dorothy was 27, she began writing articles and drawing cartoons for an Egyptian public relations magazine in London. It was there that she met an Egyptian student named Imam Abd al-Maghide. They continued to correspond after a return to Egypt, and later that year, she, he asked her to marry him. Definitely out of love and having nothing to do with a free-shot Egyptian citizenship, she moved to Cairo in 1931 to be with Imam. Um, definitely out of love and nothing to do with a free-shot Egyptian citizenship. I mean, is Egyptian citizenships so desirable? Also, if she wants to go work there, is it... I mean, I don't feel like you need to become a citizen of somewhere to go and work there. Most of the time. She was still 27 at this point, so this was certainly a whirlwind romance. The two had a son together, who she named Seti. I don't know about you, but if my wife tried to name our child after a former lover, I would veto that incredibly fast. It is from her son's name that she received the nickname Om Seti, literally Mother of Seti, by which she is best known. Oh my god, her delusions are going far! Okay, you're delusional. Egypt essentially has two social classes. One is made up of the wealthy elite and the western-educated upper-middle class, and the other is made up of all the peasants, troglodytes, trog, troglodytes. Learning new words with Simon. Look up that troglodytes. A person who lived in a cave. <laughs> oh, shit. And the other group is all the peasants, troglodytes, and chuds. Learning new words with Simon. What is a chud? Uh... Urban Dictionary. Oh. A humanoid underground dweller. Cannibalistic. Shit. Okay, well, it's on Urban Dictionary, so... Oh, wait, it's in, there's a dictionary reference as well, but Siri's not giving it to me. Fascinating. Wait, so they don't have a middle class in Egypt, or didn't in the past? They just had rich elites and peasants? Okay. It would turn out that the upper middle class had no time for any of that spiritual or metaphysical bull in Omseti's descriptions of out-of-body experiences and being visited by apparitions were a major source of tension with the well-off family that she'd married into. Only two years into the marriage, a man took a teaching job in Iraq, leaving behind his wife and child. Two years later, she went to live in Nazlat al-Saman near the Giza pyramids, and it was here that her life's work would begin. 
The Life and Work of Om Seti Admittedly, I've been a bit flippant with regards to Om Seti throughout this script thus far. What can I say? I'm kind of a Oh, don't worry, Kevin, me too. <laughs> but as you're about to learn, she was a scholar of unparalleled ability. Whether or not this was truly the result of knowledge from a previous life, the extent of her contributions cannot be understated. Yeah, I mean, because she's super motivated. She literally believes that she's like from ancient Egypt, so she learns hieroglyphics and moves to Egypt. She's extremely motivated. No wonder she gets all sorts of shit done. After a move, Omseti met Egyptian archaeologist Selim Hassan. He hired her as his secretary and draftswoman, making her the first female employee at the Department of Antiquities. In addition to correcting Hassan's English and writing English-language articles for others, Omseti also wrote numerous articles and books in her own name. Despite no formal education in Egyptology or archaeology, in fact, despite barely any education at all, she proved to be an extremely valuable resource to the department. She met and befriended many Egyptologists who taught her to be an archaeologist in exchange for expertise in drawing and hieroglyphs. Yeah, I mean, yeah, education, especially in the world of this, which is basically academia, is academia, is the kind of traditional way that everyone goes. But you can also just learn a lot. You don't necessarily need to have a degree to be an expert in something. And if she spends her whole life obsessed with this, just reading everything she can about it, her knowledge is going to be immense. And motivation. Outside of work, Omseti seemed like a bit of an oddball. Locals feared her and the rituals she would perform, and she was known to as she was known to lay offerings before the Sphinx and spend nights alone in the Giza pyramids. For all their gossip, however, they also admired her and her fearlessness in being so open about her beliefs. While she had her own belief in the gods of ancient Egypt, she remained sensitive to others, fasting during Ramadan and celebrating Christmas with the Christians. Likely a large part of this is the parallels she drew between the religion of ancient Egypt and other religions the belief that got her thrown out of Sunday school. Omseti had made a large contribution to Hassan's work, and after his death, she was offered a job to work alongside Ahmed Fakhri during his excavations at Dushur. Naturally, she jumped at the opportunity. When the project was terminated in 1956, he offered her a choice. She could take a cushy, high-paid job at the Cairo Records office, or she could work in Abydos as a draftswoman for chump change. She chose the latter. Of course she did, because she's obsessed with it. Her beloved Seti would have wanted it that way, and he told her if she remained chaste now, it could undo Bentishite's 3,000-year-old sin. If she hadn't upset the Catholics so much, she could have just said ten Hail Marys and be done with it. Yes, Abydos was a special place to her, because it was where she believed she had lived and served in the Temple of Seti. She continued her work drafting, translating, and writing. In 1964, when she turned 60, she was faced with the gruesome fate of mandatory retirement from the Department of Antiquities. They advised her to return to Cairo and seek part-time work. She made it one whole day in Cairo before saying, F*** this, and going back to Abydos. The Department of Antiquities decided to make an exception and let her continue working for another five years. Yes, Omseti was so good at what she did that a government new bureaucracy made an exception to their rules just for her. When she finally retired five years later, she worked as a part-time consultant for, you guessed it, the Department of Antiquities. Death and Burial in 1972, at the age of 68, Omseti suffered a mild heart attack. Afterwards, she decided to sell her house and move into a one-room shack made out of reeds. At this point, Ahmed Solomon, the son of the former keeper of the Temple of Seti, built a mudbrick house next to his family home so Omseti could live there as part of his family. The night she moved in, she claimed that Seti came to carry out a ritual to consecrate the new home. She claims that during the visit, Seti told her of the one and only time she met the god Set, who, for whom he was named. 
He describes it as being a spirit of all that was cruel and evil. He allegedly continued to make visits during the following weeks and told Onseti that a Cretan once told him the islands of the Aegean were the tops of mountains and that they had sunk into the Mediterranean. This was his opinion on the location of Atlantis. Much like she was only able to delay a retirement for five years, after a heart attack, Onseti was only able to delay death for five years. She knew the locals were still fearful of her and would never allow her to be buried in a Christian or Muslim cemetery. To prepare, she started building a tomb for herself in the garden behind her house, an underground burial chamber to be sealed with a stone slab. Unsurprisingly, health officials weren't having any of it and demanded that she get a proper burial. When she passed away at age 77, a local Coptic cemetery finally agreed to bury her, but they would only do it in an unwanted plot in the desert and she would not be allowed a gravestone. All she got was a pile of rocks as a marker. Onseti's impossible knowledge. Okay, so now we get to the good stuff. What did she know? And just to guess, like if she was a kid and she knew a bunch of this stuff, then you'd be like, whoa, that's amazing. But as an adult, it's like, well, she's been studying this stuff for ages, so maybe she just has good guesses or ideas or has done tons of research and learned stuff and discovered stuff, and then she decides to give that information out. That was just like. That would make a lot more sense than reincarnation. In 1952, Om Seti took her first trip to the Temple of Seti. At this point, she had been living in Egypt for 15 years and working with Egyptologists for over de a decade, so her claims of reincarnation would have been pretty well known. When she arrived at the temple, she said it felt as if she walked into a place she had lived before. While she was there, the chief inspector of the Department of Antiquities decided to test her claim. He had to stand in complete darkness and locate certain scenes on a mural inside the temple walls. To his astonishment, Onseti was able to successfully identify where everything was, despite the murals having never been published and few people having ever seen them. Alright, well there we go. Few people having ever seen them. So people have seen them before, who have left, and then talked to other people, who have talked to other people that have talked to her. And then she remembers it. Okay. She also physically pointed out where the missing garden she had identified decades prior might would have been, basically telling them to dig here. They dug, and sure enough, they found ancient tree stumps and other signs of the garden that she had told them would be there. There was also an undiscovered hidden tunnel on the north end of the temple that she was able to lead them to. Again, pretty mysterious, but also stuff that could be researched. Or like good guesses like okay well i've done a bunch of these temples and normally they build the gardens here so it's going to be about there in the early 1970s shortly before her heart attack she discovered that she knew the location of nefertiti's tomb though she didn't want to say where it was because seti had told her we don't know anything more of this family to be known she finally revealed that nefertiti's tomb was in the valley of the kings near tutankhamun's tomb if this was just a guess it would have been a seemingly odd one as the prevailing opinion was that there were no more undiscovered tombs in the valley of the kings in 1976 two anomalies were found during a sonar scan near tutankhamun's tomb and in 2000, a radar scar scan provided evidence that these were two empty chambers, but work was halted due to an investigation into the theft of antiquities. In 2006, one of the chambers was accidentally breached, and it was found to contain mummification supplies used for a royal burial, that burial most likely being in the other chamber discovered by radar. Given Ormseti's track record, I'd wager that undisturbed tomb is going to contain Nefertiti. Yeah, maybe. Maybe not. While recent theory contends that Nefertiti is not buried there, it's a matter of debate. 
From what I've read, it sounds like Egyptologist and former antiquities minister Zahi Hawass, who's now in charge of the search, has decided to dismiss this notion outright because he wants his own theory to be right instead. You're probably with me on this, Simon, but if they found two sealed chambers and accidentally breached one of them, then why don't they just give the other one a little bit of a peek before dismissing it? I guess because they just can't open it yet, they've got to like go through these procedures. There's a reason, otherwise they'd just be like cracking that open and having a look. After Omseti's death, when a Japanese team showed up with sophisticated sensing equipment, one English Egyptologist was noted to say, if Omseti were still here, I'd take her word for where things can be found any day over the most state-of-the-art equipment out there. The statement was met with much agreement. Wow, people really taken in by this. I mean, yes, she's an extremely knowledgeable Egyptologist, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't be using new technology and knowledge to, like, confirm or look or reassess, right? While researching this story, I spoke to my personal friend and professional Egyptologist, Sonia. Professional? You like some Daniel Jackson? I love it. While she no doubt had respect for the work that Omseti did, she pointed out there were a lot of inconsistent elements in the story of her past life. To start with, while there was a temple to Osiris at Kom el Sultan, it was an early dynastic site and then expanded in the Middle Kingdom. There is no evidence that it was in use during Seti I's reign. Also, there's no real evidence of the concept of a consecrated virgin as Omseti claimed to have been. In fact, ancient Egyptians didn't really have a concept of virginity. Sex served three main purposes to create children, a fun pastime, and sometimes as a religious or ritual act during certain festivals. Sex was something that people, including young people, enjoyed, and with no concept of virginity to protect, premarital sex was nothing to boot. Not only was the role of priestess not mutually exclusive with having sex, but with the nuclear family being considered the highest good in ancient Egypt, most priestesses were married with children. Her claims of what Seti told her late in life are also highly anachronistic. At the time of Seti, the god Set would not have been considered evil. He was both feared and revered, and though he was seen as chaos, he was unnecessary chaos. This is something that a king, particularly a king named after Set, would have clearly known, so it would make little sense to describing him as the spirit of all things evil and cruel. The whole Atlantis thing is also a bit out of left field, as the earliest sources we have that cite Atlantis came from Plato, who lived over 900 years after Seti's reign. That's also ignoring the fact that Atlantis was likely an allegory made up by Plato and never a real place. A lot of her inconsistencies seem to come from taking a Christianity-centric view of ancient Egyptian religion. Despite her beliefs, she still had a Catholic upbringing until being kicked out, and this would color a view on things such as the sanctity of virginity. Yeah, and this is where it all falls. I mean, it, it never really came together for me, but this is where it all falls apart. It's like she got a lot of stuff wrong that couldn't possibly be right. So at the very least, and I'm not saying I don't think she was a con person. I think she did believe this. I think she got brain damage. Like, what? Well, she got her wires crossed, and she believes this stuff. But at the very least, we know she was, you know, some of it was fabricated. And that kind of just throws doubt on the whole thing. Not that there was really need to do that in the first place, in my opinion. I'm so cynical, Jesus Christ. Can't you just enjoy the story whistle? So, wrap up. So, was Dorothy Edie Omseti the reincarnation of a 3,000-year-old priestess? No, probably not. There's probably a more realistic answer to her amazing accomplishments. 
Consider the divining rod, a forked stick that can be used to find water in dry areas. There's no such thing as a magic stick that can find water, and no diviner would ever be successful under laboratory conditions. I have such a strange memory of being a kid, and my parents bought this, like, the house where I grew up when I was, when I, was I don't know, must have been like seven, eight years old. And uh, my parents bought this uh, plot of land, like, opposite the house. And for some reason, I have a memory of a dude with a divining rod coming to see if there was water underneath this land. And I'm just like, well, we never, my parents never built a well there. I can't imagine there was any reason for them to know, need to know whether there was water under this land that we'd bought. And... Also, my parents are, like, super skeptical. There's no freaking way they'd believe in the divining rod, dude. But for some reason, I just have a memory of this. And I realize it must be, it's probably a false memory, because there's no way that that would happen. Or maybe it was a dream I had, and then over time it became, like, sort of half a memory. It's very strange. Also not interesting, so let's just move on. This means you're confused. But the world does not exist in lab conditions, and skilled diviners are genuinely successful, even in locations where our best technology says there's no water to be found. Really? These diviners are normally native to the area and been doing it their whole lives. From extensive expertise, they're noticing things like small changes in elevation or the way a particular branch on a tree grows, or who knows what else. Our brains are designed to recognize patterns, and diviners can recognize patterns that they don't even realize they're seeing and the rest of us don't know exist. They can believe in a magic stick that leads them to water, but the magic was inside them all along. Yes, I mean, sure. Yeah, it's like this chunked knowledge. What's the, there's that great book that talks about this, like the knowledge that people have. Like, I feel for me, it's like one of my chunk knowledges is like I can look at a YouTube video and be like, that's gonna work out, that's a good title, that's gonna work out, that one's okay, that one's gonna be good. And it's just because I've seen so, I've just like watched so many YouTube videos, I've made so many, that I've just got a vibe for it. Like, I can't really explain it, but I'm just like, yes, yes, no, no, yes, no, yes, yes, no. And I just believe, like, there's this chunk knowledge that people have, like the, the divining people. I'm sorry. Tangent over. Let's carry on. Ormseti was no different. She immersed herself as completely as possible in the study of ancient Egypt from the time she was a toddler. Yes, she genuinely believed she was a reincarnated princess, but she was still a scholar, not a crackpot. She learned to read hieroglyphics at an extremely young age and studied extensively. She researched, drafted, wrote scholarly works, and dedicated her entire being to learning about ancient Egypt, just like with the diviner, the magic was inside of her. While I doubt it was the result of a past life, I also don't think it matters. Her contributions were numerous, her knowledge unrivaled. I have to agree with the earlier anecdote. I would trust Domsetti pointing and telling me, dig here, of the most sophisticated sensing technology in the world, and given everything else she successfully found, I guess we know where to start looking for Atlantis. Yeah, because she's got this trunk knowledge. She's been doing this forever. She's really good at it. She's a true expert, as I brought up earlier. Bonus fact. Egyptian mythology was a constantly changing thing. When you have to keep people entertained for a few thousand years, naturally the writers are going to tweak the characters now and then to keep things interesting. Set wasn't considered to be full-on evil by the time of Seti I's reign, but exactly how evil was he? How about cartoon supervillain levels of evil? Really? 
Osiris and his wife, and also sister Isis, were reigning on Earth and trying to bring civilization and prosperity to the people. Osiris's brother, Set, got a little bit miffed, however. You see, his wife, and also his sister, Nephtes, conceived a child named Anubis, but the father wasn't Set, it was Osiris. If this isn't weird enough yet, Set and Osiris are also brothers. Oh my god, I'm so confused. I mean, this is some weird ancient Egyptian incest shit, right? She set needed to get revenge, and there was only one way to do it. A fancy dinner party. It's customary at any dinner party to bring something for the host, so Set brought with him a giant, beautiful coffin. Holy If someone came to a dinner party I was throwing and just was like, Hey, Whistle, I got you a coffin. And be like, you thought, what the f***, man? <laughs> Jesus. Not cool, my dude. What are you up to? I know it's a nice gift. Coffins are really expensive, but Christ, man. What the f***? He said he would give it to whoever fits inside. This must have been a normal thing that happened because guests had no issue taking turns seeing how the coffin fit them. When Osiris laid down inside the coffin that was specifically built for him, Set and his conspirators slammed the lid, nailed it shut, and sank it to the bottom of the Nile. Holy sh! Isis was able to eventually retrieve her husband slash brother. Oh yeah, there's that incest going on, and return him to life because these are gods and goddesses. So Set tore Osiris into fourteen pieces and scattered them across Egypt. <laughs> And this is one of the least insane Egyptian myths that I've read. Oh my god. Yeah, the past was the worst. So this has been an episode of Decoding the Unknown. I feel like we've very thoroughly decoded the unknown in this one. Uh, also, if you like this episode, if you're watching on YouTube, by the way, right now, we've got another episode called The Pollock Sisters Reincarnated. I'm going to link to it on the screen so you can click it. If you're listening to this as a podcast form, just scroll back a, a little bit in your app and you'll see The Pollock Sisters Reincarnated. And that's another episode similar to this one where it's like, whoa, there's all these super unexplained things about these Pollock Sisters that does seem like they're reincarnated. And then it's like, yeah, but this, but that, but this, but that, but this, and that. And you're like, oh, okay. <laughs> I get it. I mean, spoil. I just spoiled it for you, but it's a fun episode. The Pollock Sisters Reincarnated. Uh, check it out, and I'll see you next time.